Every day, people are faced with difficult choices that they have to make, whether in the workplace or not. Today's fun question is, would you rather read a physical book or a digital one? Hey, everyone. Welcome to Impossible Tradeoffs. I'm Katie Harbath. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Impossible Tradeoffs. I'm super excited to invite Theo Skideas. Um, Theo, welcome to Impossible Tradeoffs. Thank you so much, Katie. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to have you. And I usually do a fun Impossible Tradeoff question for folks. Do you prefer a physical book or like reading it on Kindle or something like that? Sure. So I that actually is an impossible trade-off for me because... And I was... Believe it or not, I was thinking about it this morning because... So I love to read my first job was as a librarian in the children's and young adult section of the library in the hometown that I grew up in, in Bedford, New York. And so I spent four years working in my hometown library. I love books. I specifically like physical copies of books. Um, I read a lot of fantasy fiction and science fiction, but my sister's partner last December got me a Kindle, my first ever Kindle. And so I have now been reading on Kindle, but it's a little bit difficult for me because I run a, a nonprofit that supports locally and independently owned businesses. And we do a lot of advocacy around antitrust and specifically the role of Amazon in undermining independent bookstores around the country. And so every time I read a book on Kindle, um, I feel a little bit of shame that I'm not buying the book from a local and independently owned business. Um, and so I generally do try to buy my books um, and really everything from locally and independently owned businesses. But I have been reading on Kindle this year for the first time ever. And I have a lot of conflicting feelings about it. I know. I started getting physical books again during COVID because I just didn't yeah. want so much screen time that I was putting on it. But um, nothing kind of beats a Kindle if you're like at the pool or something or if you like... I have, I like to read a lot too. And so it's like, are you going to bring a huge stack of books on vacation? Or are you going to yep. bring a Kindle? And yep. so it's kind of the the in between there. Well, thank you for answering that that fun question. Um, let's jump into it. Last week, you were in the UK for doing some work around AI. Why don't you share a little bit about what that was? Sure. So for the last few months, I've been working with a nonprofit called Partnership on AI. It's an organization that's pretty uniquely positioned to bring together stakeholders across different sectors. So industry, civil society, academia, and government to talk about responsible AI initiatives. And the organization hosted a policy forum at London's BBC offices in West London to bring together global policymakers into a conversation about responsible AI, especially focused on AI governance. So it was a two-day summit where we brought together diverse stakeholders um, from all over the world, actually, to talk about issues, including the UK's perspective on AI governance, specifically because we were recognizing that the world was gearing up for the UK AI Safety Summit, which is ongoing now. Um, so we really wanted to understand the UK's perspectives on AI governance and global implications. We also launched uh, PAI's Guidance for Safe Model Deployment, which is a multi-stakeholder model. So it's a really cool, interactive, um, choose-your-own-adventure type model um, that's on PAI's website. So I encourage folks to check it out. And it was developed in collaboration with leaders from industry, civil society, and academia that helps folks explore issues in terms of identifying risks to scaling oversight and safety practices based on the capabilities and availability of each AI model. So it allows you to um, create custom guidance based on different foundation models, different kinds of releases, um, and different types of updates. So we launched that at the summit and are actually uh, looking for feedback. So if folks explore it and have feedback, we welcome your feedback. We also had a panel on AI safety policy. So specifically talking about whether governments around the world are using the same conception of AI safety when they use that term. Increasingly, we're realizing that there are divergent understandings of the concept of AI safety and, in fact, AI as well. How we have referred to artificial intelligence has evolved a lot in the last few years. So we had a conversation on definitions. We also talked about priorities. Given the different trade-offs that policymakers are facing, which is very apt given the name of 
in this broader discussion we're having in possible trade-offs, we wanted to understand how governments are prioritizing AI amidst the other policy areas that they need to be tackling at the moment. And we also talked a lot about interoperability. So there's a larger understanding that different governments, different multi-stakeholder organizations um, are putting together standards, but are they interoperable? And so how will companies be able to work within competing and sometimes divergent standards um, was a conversation that we had. We also talked about AI risks and impacts, human-centered AI policies, and the importance of respecting uh, human rights in frameworks that are being put forth. And then last, and I'm sure this is a topic that you'd be interested in, Katie, is election integrity in the era of generative AI. That's fantastic. And obviously very interested in that. And that kind of takes me to, we just jumped right into the questions and I forgot to have you give people a little bit about your background, which is a bit on elections and election integrity. So before we keep talking about all the AI stuff, why don't you share with folks a bit about um, what you've done in the past? Absolutely. So I started out my career working in international development. I worked in the Middle East and North Africa region during the height of the Arab Spring. And so it was fascinating for me to uh, be working in the region with civil society organizations while people were using social media companies like Twitter to advance very complicated political and social conversations. And so my work in the region at a time when the region was transforming be, in part because of social media, got me interested in conversations around online speech governance, content moderation, and trust and safety issues like, like algorithmic bias um, and online violence against women and disinformation and fake news. I then moved to the US federal government where I spent five years consulting on a range of mis and disinformation um, and online safety issues around the Middle East, North Africa, Eastern Europe, and the Sahel region of Africa. And then I joined Twitter, where I managed the day-to-day operations of our Trust and Safety Council, which was Twitter's largest public consultative body, focused on issues like dehumanization, content governance, uh, mental health and suicide, and um, a range of other online safety issues. We also, um, or I managed our uh, Trusted Flaggers program for human rights defenders, and I also managed a research hub for the public policy team. And I also support our global civic integrity, uh, transparency, and crisis response work. And so I really enjoyed the work that I did specifically around election support globally. And in the months since leaving Twitter, I've been working with a range of civil society organizations on issues like online gender-based violence, disinformation, and information integrity, as well as um, online violence against women and now artificial intelligence. That's fantastic. And um, congratulations on starting your own thing as well. I know how hard Thank that you. is, um, but it's super exciting as, as well. Um, so shifting back to artificial intelligence, um, this week, President Biden um, signed a over 100 page executive order around AI. For those that don't have time to read 111 pages of an executive order, can you give us a bit of an overview of what that said? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a sweeping effort to promote responsible AI development and governance. It addresses safety, privacy, and algorithmic discrimination and worker protection and aligns very closely with civil society's work, including the work of partnership on AI. It mandates that developers of powerful AI systems share safety test results and establishes standards and red team testing. It aligns with a lot of the work around civil society, specifically including standards standards for authenticating AI-generated content, protecting Americans' privacy, supporting workers, and advancing equity and civil rights. And a lot of the order builds on the pre-existing AI Bill of Rights, which was spearheaded by former White House OSTP Director Alondra Nelson, who recently joined our Policy Steering Committee at Partnership on AI, which we launched last Thursday. Um, so we're really excited that her work is reflected very closely in this new executive order. So it really sets the standard for robust regulations around safeguarding individual rights and enhancing rigorous testing and supervision. And if you look at the fact sheet, which I think is a really helpful summary, it breaks down the executive order into the major categories. So it talks first about new standards for AI safety and security. So specifically creating standards, tools, and tests to ensure that AI systems are safe, secure, and trusted 
trustworthy and to mitigate against the risks of using AI to engineer dangerous biological materials, as well as protect Americans from AI-enabled fraud and deception. And then there's a whole section on protecting the privacy of Americans. So this includes strengthening privacy-preserving research and technologies and evaluating how agencies collect and use commercially available information. Um, and then there's a section on advancing equity and civil rights. This is personally a section that I'm very excited about and that I think really reflects the input of civil society over the last several years. So this includes providing clear guidance to landlords, federal benefits programs, and federal contractors to keep AI algorithms from being used to exacerbate discrimination, as well as addressing algorithmic discrimination through training, technical assistance, and coordination, and ensuring fairness throughout the criminal justice system. And then there's a section on standing up for consumers, patients, and students um, by advancing the responsible use of AI in healthcare and the development of affordable and life-saving drugs and shaping the potential of this technology to transform education. There's also a section on supporting workers by developing principles and best practices to mitigate the harms and maximize the benefits of AI for workers, specifically focused on addressing job displacement, labor standards, workplace equity, health and safety and data collection. And then there's a section on promoting innovation and competition, advancing American leadership abroad, and ensuring responsible and effective government use of AI. So it's a really exciting executive order. Um, and, and we're excited to see specifically um, how, how much um, new talent this is going to bring into the White House and the government writ large. Now, this executive order, though, it's only really focused on the federal government. Like there's there's a limitation to what just an executive order can do. Um, it's got to be at least the way the president is saying he is also calling on congressional legislation in this space. Um, where is Congress right now on the AI debate? <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question. So Congress, as you can imagine, has a lot of thoughts. Um, in the last year, in 2023, in fact, we've noticed that child safety and AI seem to have received the most legislative attention. So it's one of the themes that Congress, um, specifically within the technology policy ecosystem, is very interested in. So we've seen um, a proliferation of uh, bipartisan legislation on AI focused on a lot of the issues that the executive order is touching on. So um, bills are aiming to address issues around data protection and fraud. I know there's some stuff on political ads, right, um, in terms of AI disclosure when it's used in political ads. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, um, President Biden, when he was uh, talking about the launch of the executive order, talked about he himself has been misrepresented in uh, a deep fake. Um, and so there's quite a bit of conversation around um, transparency and the manipulation of political discourse around elections specifically. Um, so some of the uh, increasing legislation is focused on risk assessments and transparency, um, specifically in the context of political ads and political discourse generally. Yeah, I'll be curious to see if any of the candidates on the right side of the aisle, I know some of them have been talking about AI quite a bit, but given the executive order, how much this is going to, will it be a big part of the campaign trail? We know it will be in terms of like speech and content that these platforms have to deal with, but there's the policy side of it all too, of how different administrations might might handle this. Yeah. And I think this leads to the final theme of our conversation, which is the ongoing UK AI Safety Summit, uh, because different administrations around the world are trying to play a role in advancing AI regulation and legislation, given how transformative this technology is. So perhaps I can talk a little bit about that. As yeah, well. I was definitely going to ask about that because there was an interesting article in Politico this week where they're like how all these leaders around the world are kind of competing for um, legislating AI and who's actually in the lead on this. Where are we going to land? The G7 came out with their AI principles. The UN just came out with um, an AI advisory board. It's very much the the, the thing du jour to, to kind of do this year of, of putting together. So yeah, I'm curious, like, what, what are your thoughts on that, given the UK summit that's happening right now? Yeah, and I think this speaks really nicely to the, the overarching concept of impossible trade-offs, because one of the big debates that's unfolding is whether we should be 
uh, prioritizing efforts within AI responsible conversations on existential frontier risk versus immediate risks. Um, and so I think that one of the conversations that is unfolding in the UK AI Safety Summit specifically is around the prioritization of efforts around frontier risk and current risks. That is an unsolved issue and one that is taking up a lot of the conversation, as well as regulation not being the only answer, right? So there's a role that, that federal governments can play in advancing thoughtful regulation, but but there are other stakeholders that have a role to play as well. And um, I think one of the concerns is whether the summit is taking on too much. So notably, uh, the summit is including Chinese voices um, in an effort to bring all meaningful stakeholders together, as well as tackle the question of existential risk. And so there's been a conversation around whether the summit is too ambitious uh, or appropriately ambitious in the broad scope of work and inclusivity that it has set for itself. You were mentioning frontier risk. Can you just define what that means for folks who might not be familiar with with that that term and that thinking? Yeah, so frontier risk is the idea that there are a range of risks that have yet to unfold, but could be devastating for humanity writ large. So one of these risks, for example, is the concept of misalignment. The idea that as artificial intelligence becomes more advanced, it might align with goals that are not necessarily the goals that humans have set for themselves. And so the fear of generative artificial intelligence is that if or as it becomes artificial generative or artificial general intelligence, the idea that it is sentient and conscious in and of itself, we might see a range of existential risks unfolding that um, we've never encountered to date. So that could be misalignment, super intelligent AI, adversarial attacks, um, more robust AI generated deep fakes, um, algorithmic bias in a totally new way, AI and autonomous weapons, and AI kind of doing its own thing. Yeah, that's kind of why I also recommend people to panic responsibly, right? Because I think that there are a lot of things that we imagine AI might do that may not have been realized yet. But I also think it's good that we're having these conversations now. You know, we're having a lot of conversations we didn't have when social media was first created. Um, and we're starting very early, you know, at least somewhat early on. AI has been with us for a long period of time. But like, at least we're we're having those conversations and kind of thinking about that. Well, Theo, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective. Thank you so much, Katie. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Everyone. Now we're going to switch to our main interview. And today we're going to talk to Leticia Avia, who is a former French member of parliament and now works a lot on digital regulatory issues in Europe as well as in the United States. And so today we are going to be talking all things European Union elections. Those are going to be happening next June, as well as talking about some of the regulation that has been coming out of Europe, including the Digital Services Act, which has already passed, but some other legislation that they are considering around AI and media and everything else. So please enjoy. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Impossible Trade-Offs. I'm Katie Harbeth. And I'm really excited today to welcome Leticia, who I originally met when she was working um, at the Center for American Progress. And we are here today to talk all things EU elections. Leticia, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Let's start with maybe you giving folks a little bit of background about yourself. You've got a really interesting career. Um, and then we'll jump into all the elections. Sure, sure. Where should I, where should I start? Uh, I'm 37. <laughs> I'm a former member of the French parliament. Uh, I've been a member of the parliament for the last five years, uh, as a part of the uh, President Macron political, political party. I was a spokeswoman from this party too. Before that, I was a lawyer working mostly as a business lawyer. And then I jumped into politics. Don't ask me why. Just, happened to me, found myself being interesting in all this political life. And then when you're into it, you just go and go and work on it. And then I became a member of parliament. And uh, sadly, in 2022, there were very big elections in in France with kind of change our course of history, I will say. And so I lost the elections. 
And uh, now I work as a digital policy advisor. So that's where we met because been working for a year uh, for the Center of American Progress. And I continue my work uh, mostly with European organizations uh, around uh, the regulation of social media. And what got you interested in, in digital policy? Was it while you were a member of parliament? What, what made you kind of want to dig into that area in spe- specifically? Well, that wasn't my initial uh, choice. As a former lawyer became a member of parliament, my main focus was to work on justice issues. And that was really what I was working on. But I was also a spokeswoman from the party. So I was doing a lot of TV, uh, a lot of media, and I started to receive a lot of uh, hate speech because I'm a woman and a black woman. That's a bit, a lot. So um, at this time, I started to think about what we could do to stop this, to stop all this uh, hate speech on social media. And the president gave me a mission to, to draft a bill. And this is how it started. And then I realized that it was much more than just hate speech. It's more of the core of our society that is challenged by our social media, by the digital space. So continue to work on that, to work on solutions to provide a safer internet. And then I met with the European Commissioner Thierry Breton and we worked together on the Digital Services Act and so on and so on. We're definitely going to dig into the Digital Services Act, but let's zoom out for folks um, about the EU because they may not be familiar with how elections work and even how the European Union is structured because it's different than anywhere else in the world is sort of structured. So can you give us a little bit of background about the region and sort of the governance structure? Sure. First thing people have to know is that if they have no clue how the election works for the uh, European Union, they have to know that it's normal. Most people, even in the EU, they don't know anything about those elections. And this is, I think, one of the major points during the, the campaign. It's to get people interested in that and so that they will understand why they are voting for and what they are voting for. Uh, so the EU, it's three different organizations. There is the Commission, there is a Council, and the Parliament. So the Commission is like a government. The Council represents each member state. And then there is the Parliament, that is, the Congress. And the elections we're going to have in 2024 is about the Parliament. The Parliament is, uh, the European Parliament is the only transnational assembly where the representatives are elected by people directly, saying like in the US, the election is not direct. You elect some uh, major electors and then will vote for the uh, president. So here, every citizen, every European citizen can vote for a member of the parliament. So we're not going to vote for one person. It's each country organizes its own elections. So the European elections, it's 24 elections. That will be on the same four days. It's always four days. So it's in June from the 6th to the 9th. And it's each, in each country, you can vote for a number of member of parliaments that is proportionate to the numbers of uh, citizens that you have. So um, the European Parliament is between 700 and 750 people always depends on, you know, natality, etc. So how many citizens we have in Europe and each country can have from six to 96 member of the parliament. For example, Germany, that is the country which has the most people, they have 96 members and Luxembourg. But it's this tiny, tiny country, but very powerful, I have to say. <laughs> uh, they have six members of, of the parliament. And so this is how it is, how it is organized. But it's not because a country has 96 members, for example, Germany, that they have most, uh, most power in the parliament because the election will allow to have 96 representative of Germany, but they will have different political ideas because we have internal election first. And so when the members are elected, then there is the second step that is to build political groups 
And so from the 96 people from Germany, maybe half of them will go to the right and the other half to the left. Or maybe it's going to be another organization because there are seven political groups in the EU parliament. So that's why it gets complicated because people sometimes they will not know exactly where their vote will go to which idea precisely. But this is, I think, really politics at, the, at its best. Uh, at the European Parliament. Can you tell a bit more about like who are the types of folks that are that are running for this? What what are the the political parties? Are there certain issues that they care about in terms of trying to form these coalitions? What does that look like? And then how does that turn into governing where you get something like the Digital Services Act? I think like everywhere in the world now, you can see three major blocks. So the left that is not unified left. Uh, the right that is not unified, uh, and a block at the center. The block at the center is, is quite new because it came from the last elections in 2019. It's named Renew, and it's like a duplication of what we did in France with President Macron. And so there is no majority at the left. There is no majority at the right. There is the extreme right that is gaining more, more, more space. Like we can see that everywhere in the world, I'm very sad about that. And the Renew group, um, this is what's something that I think was very, very positive is the one that is helping to, to find coalitions, to find solutions because they are at the center. And so they are the one who can make the balance between, uh, each positions. So, there are 108 people today in this group. And what I think is very interesting is that anytime you want to have a compromise on a text, you need to go to discuss, to negotiate uh, with those members and to try to find a compromise. I think European politics is about compromise every time. You have to. You have 27 countries, 27 way, a culture ways of thinking, and then you have within that all the political parties. So you need to compromise. You cannot just say, this is uh, the way I do things. This is the way I think. This is my policy. Doesn't work in European Union. And how are these parties and candidates using social media, online platforms to, to campaign and reach out to voters? Very badly. This is, this is so, so, so difficult because all parties, they all have um, digital experts, etc. Uh, I've been working on the digital campaign for uh, Renew, for the campaign of the president. Um, we are always so late, so doing boomers' ideas. This is what we do. Uh, <laughs> this is not good. This is not good at all. Because we need to... We need to use the digital space to reach out more people. But I think politics is not designed to work on this digital space. A very strong political idea cannot be just tell, be, be told in 10 seconds. Doesn't work. And so you will try to do that. And when you do that, um, your content is not what you wanted to say. And then you lose the quality of what you want to say. And then that's what led all of us to a kind of populism for social media. Because we want to have the reach. We want to touch so many people that then we stop saying what we have to say. And sometimes you will see politics using the social media. And I have to say I did that too. Not even talking about policy or anything. Just using social media to show themselves, to create some empathy for their person to show that they cook, they run, they have friends, they dance, they listen to music. So more people follow them. And then you see that when you use your community to then talk about politics, you will have less life. And you will have even people who will just stop, stop following you. So I think for me, this is a real, real, real problem we have today is how to do a real political campaign and really, really uh, acting as politics in the digital space, not 
uh, just trying to to be influencers and then trying to put some political ideas sometimes to time. Yeah. What platforms do you see people using the most? Is it is it is it still Facebook? Is it Instagram? Is it TikTok? Uh what I find that you know many oh yeah all of them all of them but very differently. Um, I will use my personal example, but I think what I did is what most people do is that I will keep using Facebook, especially to talk to people over forty forty years old. Yes, I will put less pictures on on Facebook, more content, and I will look at the comments and answer to the comments on Facebook. So that's why you can create discussions with people and especially with uh, above 60 years old people with the ones who are really going to ask you real questions, etc. Um, LinkedIn, use LinkedIn to have more, you'll, go more, you'll be more specific on LinkedIn because you want to reach out professionals, people. Uh, you will also engage with comments there because usually... Uh, this is also very specific questions. So use that. And I can see that the politics use LinkedIn much more, uh, especially this last year after all this Twitter drama has been used a lot. Twitter, Twitter is where you have to be seen when you have to react very quickly. And it is more like a press release. And, and it is also I would have, I would use Twitter as, uh, something to be more transparent in what I say, in what I do. So I don't want, if I don't want anyone to say, Oh, you've been talking to this lobbyist and you didn't disclaim it. Like, oh, that was all over my Twitter because I'll always put a picture on Twitter and some people will know. But then you don't look at the comments. You don't answer to comments. You just like put that here and then. Not there. You can use Twitter also if you want to to be sure the press will look at what you do and what when, if you want to do that, you just go there and you just comment or be harsh on someone else. So when you do that, it's because you want to be seen as someone who has strong ideas and you go all over Twitter and you use that with your weapon <laughs> as a weapon and you go there. Have you seen people using Twitter less now that Elon Musk has taken over? Have you have you yes. noticed any changes? Yes, I've seen I've seen people leaving Twitter and going more on LinkedIn. Uh, also because they got tired of all that. Also, it's it's really exhausting, and you have always to check the notifications, etc. I've seen people also realizing that they're just um, being part of this play of this game uh, of, yeah, someone will say something and I will be also the one uh, overreacting, etc. And there's sometimes when you realize just all of that is pointless, especially because we're just not really talking to real people because it's just at the end of the day, just a small community of people who are reading Twitter and looking at what is happening on Twitter. People that I see when I go to the market, they have no clue what I tweeted about. And this is something you have to keep in mind when you're a politician. And I want to talk about the two last platforms that I also reused, Instagram. And Instagram, I think it's a, it, it is becoming a good combo when you can put a bit about yourself and you have to put about yourself. But also put some videos, some strong words, etc., uh, about your policy. So this works for a campaign. And you can engage with people using all the magnets of Instagram, uh, etc. And then there is TikTok. Bad idea for politics. I, I don't know at least any French politician who made a great success TikTok and really doing politics on TikTok. I've never seen that. It's not, it's not for that. Yeah. And are politicians, is it more that they're not suited to TikTok or are they also worried about the national security concerns like no. we make here in the U.S.? This, this is, this is a real, this is a real American concern. Uh, you know, as Europeans, we've been used to you, to use devices which are built from by foreigners, <laughs> let's say Americans. So we, you know, most of them European people keep thinking that whatever we do on their 
digital platform is read by the American government. So, well, and uh, that's what I find so interesting that Americans don't put two and two together, that they have such issue with TikTok here in the, in the States. And they don't think about the fact of how people outside the United States feel yeah. about them. Right. I, it's just, it's a funny disconnect that I, yeah. I, I don't see many people here in the States kind of realizing. I kind of find it a bit funny when I could see everyone thinking, Oh, TikTok, this is Chinese. Well, I'm not comparing. China and the US, but I, I I thought it was kind of funny to see how when a foreign authority is there, people will just open their eyes and say, oh, we might be in trouble. Yes, yes, but you were in trouble before also, just keep that in mind, uh, but yes. Well, this might be good to go into the Digital Services Act because I think that a lot of people are hearing about that, but they don't, unless they're steeped in this stuff like you and I are, they may not actually realize what the Digital Services Act is. So let's start there. And then I want to dig into sort of what it's going to require the platforms to do and how that might have um, impacts beyond just the European Union. Sure. The Digital Services Act is gold. Can I start like that? <laughs> you can start however you want. <laughs> no, it's really, I'm very uh, happy we have this strong digital regulation. And um, that's what I'm working on. It's really working on making this very, very efficient. Because if it works, it can really change the way we use social media and the, the impact social media have on us. So the Digital Services Act is a regulation that is in completely in force now in Europe since uh, last uh, August. And it aims to create uh, um, all the pillars for a safer digital space with one very simple idea is that what is forbidden on the physical space has to be forbidden on the digital space. And so it creates all the mechanism to be sure that the laws, the rights that we have when we walk in the streets applies also when we are on the digital space. So for that, the Digital Services Act has some proportionate obligations. The more a tech company, a, a, a tech services is big, the more it has obligations. And the commissioner, uh, I think it was Margaret Steger, she used this um, Spider-Man uh, quote to say, with great powers come great responsibilities. And this is it. So when you're a very small online service, you don't have much obligations, but the more you grow, the more impact you can have on society, the more it will be requested from you. So... It has, I think, what is the core of the Digital Services Act is transparency. Transparency about the way the system uh, uh, function, about the algorithm, about uh, people engaged in moderation, in content moderation, about the rules for content moderation, transparency about the results also, how many content were taken down? How many times did they respond to a judicial request? How can we they see an improvement on the content, etc.? It's all about knowing. And I think it's very, very important because what happened in the last decades regarding uh, online services is that people felt powerless because he couldn't understand what was happening. And when you were talking to all these people from tech companies, and I think you know that. I was that person, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They will, they, they will just not give you the information and say, this is trade secret or whatever. And so you wouldn't know what you have to change to improve the system because you, you wouldn't know what is the system. So transparency is to empower, to empower the authorities to empower the users. And I think that's what is very important. The second pillar is reactivity. I think it's very important um, to tell the platforms they have to take action when there is wrongdoing on their platform. 
The difference with uh, some previous laws that we debated, and I was the one passing a bill in France about that, was saying, I was saying, like in Germany, you have 24 hours maximum to take down uh, illegal content. The Digital Services Act doesn't say that. Say you do as fast as possible to take action. So you decide on which action is the most appropriate for your device and you do that as fast as possible. I think it's worst for the tech companies because when they won't do the job, it's maybe, I think they will have stronger fines than if we had told them exactly what they had to do, but we're going to see <laughs> exactly how it pays. And then there is um, audit. I think it's very important is the ability for authorities, for people doing research to go deep deep in the machine, deep in the system, and to understand how it works, where there are some abuses to make recommendations. And so this is something that applies mostly to very big platforms, uh, all the ones we've been talking about uh, earlier. Yeah, people may have heard them as VLOPs, very large online platforms. So you might exactly. hear that phrase. Yes, exactly. And uh, but we, we, we only say in French, big text. <laughs> and I think it is also important because it gives a message to all these uh, big tech companies to say, you have to work on finding what your device can create has an abuse to the right. You have to, you, you cannot just say, I wasn't aware of that. Once a year, you have to, to deep dive and find what, what, what is created and you have to find solutions to mitigate that. And so you won't have any more platforms like uh, TikTok or Snapchat saying, oh, I didn't know there were uh, drugs traffic on my platform. No, you, this is part of your obligations now to know. And you have resources to know that and to make sure you know that. And to make sure all of this work, what is best? Fines and great fines, six up to up to 6% of the global income. Because when it comes to tech companies, there's only one thing that works, it's money. So if you just say you should do that, you should comply with that, we're asking for voluntary commitment, etc., it doesn't work. If you say, if you don't say do that, you're going to pay a lot of money. Then everyone is around the table and trying to make their best. So this is the big lines of the Digital Services Act. And how are the platforms responding to this? Are they, do you think they're ready for this enforcement? Like how, how do you see this playing out, especially as we go into the elections? Most of them are ready. If you take a platform like Google, they are extra ready. They're ready like last year already. And just sometimes I, I even think they, they want a, a control from the commission to say, Hey, Look, um, we are the good guys. <laughs> we have everything. Just <laughs> compliant. And some of the ones are still trying to find their ways out. So we can see that with Twitter. I don't know if you've seen the discussion that was just yesterday, public discussion between Elon Musk and uh, Thierry Breton because... <laughs> yeah, I did not have that on my bingo card for this year. I should have, but like <laughs> you're seeing, you know, you're seeing this stuff playing out in public in real time that you normally wouldn't. So in some ways, there's transparency there. But yeah, this is almost one of the first kind of really yeah. times that I'm seeing the DSA really being implemented and being tried to be implemented quickly. Because that was one of my concerns was that People may not realize how fast you need to move yes. to try to progress, you know, make sure these companies are doing what they need to do. And that was a great move from the commissioner to say, okay, there is something huge happening here with the attack on Israel and all this violent content being on social media and all this apology of terrorism that you can see on Twitter. This is something people cannot contest as being illegal and not something that should be uh, taken care of. So this is no discussion about that. So I'm putting it on the public place that Twitter is not doing the job. And so then Elon Musk entered saying, what are you talking about? 
I don't know which content you're talking about. This is always the answer of uh, the tech companies to say, um, you should notify me every single content that you see that is illegal. But no, this is part of their job. So um, I'm just waiting for to see uh, the consequences uh, on that. But it can really go far as blocking the access of Twitter on the European continent. And the European continent being the second largest market for these companies, it's a huge loss of money. Anyway, if Twitter complies now and fast, I think that will show all the DSA is serious. And there's a portion of the DSA too that has to do around political advertising, right? Um, that's going to also impact ca- how campaigns are using the platforms. Yeah, uh, it's not. It's not a part of the DSA. Um, the DSA just refers to it as something that. Ah, uh, okay. And then there is another regulation that is about political um, advertising and the regulation of political advertising. Um, that's something that is very important also in the time of elections, especially because uh, we have different rules depending on the countries, depending even in Europe, uh, French is, France is very, very strong about political advertising. It's forbidden. Yeah, you all have the strongest, uh, some of the strongest political ad laws out of any country that I had. I think it's forbidden, what, six months ahead of the election, three months? But it's a very long period of time where nothing can happen. Exactly. You can't have any uh, sponsoring anything on your content on social media. And, uh, and if there is any sponsoring of content, uh, of political content, even except the time of election, you have to the transparency about where the, 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 the money comes from, especially if it's a foreigner. So this is something to fight uh, uh, foreign interferences, and that's quite important to do that. And is foreign interference, we, we didn't touch on that at all. That's obviously a huge thing that many people are talking about, particularly with Russia's invasion into Ukraine. There was talk mm-hmm. of a lot of Russian influence in Slo- Slovakia recently had elections. Poland's recently about to have, have elections as well. How has that been a part of the conversation as well in terms of developing these regulations? It is one of the center of discussions, but it's also something that is some sensitive that is discussed by other parts, like the DSA, etc. is the discussion of the uh, digital ministers. And then when we go to foreign interferences is one of international relations uh, or the Ministry of Interior because of the question of national security. Um, we have in each European country a uh, department division that works on foreign interferences in connection with the uh, European Commission. What we know for sure is that there is a lot, a lot of uh, interferences from Russia in Europe. There is the one you can see, and that is obvious, all the disinformation that you can see through Russian media, but even on social media, etc. We, like Russia today, uh, is not something accessible anymore. But still, um, I can tell you, for example, during the uh, COVID crisis, uh, sometimes I could have 400 comments on each of my publications, and they will come from Russia. Uh, so that's an attempt to destabilize. But this is just the easy stuff. What is the worst is when it will come more disguised to try to influence people. And when they will do that, they will go through other countries. Like they will go through American accounts, for example, and trying to raise some uh, a conflict uh, between French and French people and American people. So then it will influence then the way French people will take decisions. They will go through the American, uh, the African continent when they are 
using a lot of African uh, countries to spread disinformation also. Uh, it is really like a hub of uh, disinformation now in some African countries. And they, they will use some Russian strategies such as a compromat. Uh, I don't know if you, you, you heard about that. The compromat is when you, you're going to try to trick a politician we had that during uh, one of our elections in Paris with a Russian woman who tricked a French politician and then spread the pictures uh, on the internet. That's a compromat. That's very Russian. So they have so many ways to 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 act, and I think they are much uh, in advance, and we're always fighting what they did on the previous election. That's our problem. So for 2024, for example, we're going to prepare ourselves thinking of everything that happened in 2020 and in 2019, but we don't know what's going to happen in 2024. That's a problem. I want to ask about two other pieces of regulation that I know are working its way uh, through through the region. One of those is around media specifically and whether or not platforms need to, if I remember right what I read, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, platforms we need to give media outlets 24 hours notice mm-hmm. before taking down content. I'm hoping, can you share a little bit more about that regulation? And one of the things I'm really curious about is how is it going to define who is a media outlet or not? Because that was one of the biggest struggles that I know we had when I was at Facebook of trying to draw those lines. Well, this is the heart of a problem. I have to say I'm in strong disagreement with what, what is happening uh, with this. I think it's Article 16 or 17 of the Media Freedom Act. So the Media Freedom Act is a regulation that was supposed to help the media, help the independence of the media, and that's a very good regulation on everything, I believe, except from this specific provision. That is a provision that wants to make sure that digital platform won't censure the media. I understand that. To say there is a freedom of press, Facebook cannot just say I'm taking down article from a newspaper. Okay, but as you said, how do you define a newspaper? And in the definition of the Media Freedom Act, they say that they should follow the rules uh, of um, uh, each country, each national country. But if you're in France, for example, we don't have a definition of the media. And what we're doing right now can be and surely would be defined as a media, actually. So um, there is no unified definition of media. What the regulation says is that if a platform wants to take down a content from a media, it has first to notify the media and wait 24 hours before before doing that. I think it's good for all the mainstream media, but I think it's very, very dangerous for all of the other ones. And when I was discussing that with some of the uh, French authorities, I told them the examples, for example, of um, we've seen that fake newspapers were created through AI and that they could spread disinformation during 24 hours without any problem. And we all know that 24 hour is a very long time in the digital space. Uh, for now, that's the agreement. I think it's still under discussion. I know that, how do you say that? Journalists without borders? Is that? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah journal. Yep. They, they have a strong, uh, proposal that, uh, I really hope will work to create a journalist trust uh, initiative that will be an international board uh, just uh, to to label some of uh, the the media and so to say okay those ones are the media uh, which benefits from this protection and I know it's something people don't like uh, that someone will say you're media you're not but at one point if there are some exceptions especially on such impact uh, as disinformation, we need to define in advance who is a media and who is not. Yes. Um, I And I'm when I first read that too, I'm also just very nervous, like you said, the 24 hours 
time frame. And if that content is violating, if it's disinformation, it could have so much damage before you even take that, take that down that I really hope that they think through those yeah. unintended consequences and how this could, like, like you said, I totally get the, you don't want these platforms, you know, you don't want Musk deciding which news outlets can or cannot be on, on Twitter, right? And that you could see him potentially doing that, um, and making that change. But, um, yeah, there's a real flip side to that, that, um, I'm going to be really curious to see yes. how that works the out. Thing, let's, let's think about the good aspects. It was seven, seven, 52 hours uh, at the beginning of the discussions. So now it's just 24. (laughs) Um, And then I wanted to ask about artificial intelligence. Um, Obviously the topic um, that many people have been focused on. Shiny object. The new shiny object. Um, it's obviously been around for forever, but now it is much more accessible to many people. Um, and I know this is an area where the EU is also leading on in terms of thinking about regulation. Where is that right now and kind of where are the discussions focusing on? <laughs> so where do I start? Settle in. <laughs> <laughs> so you're right. That's it. So that's the new shiny object and we are now discussing a regulation. The first draft of this regulation is two years old. But now it has to happen before the end of the year. Why does it have to happen before the end of the year? Because everyone is concerned about AI now. Because the US, they did this voluntary commitment with some of the companies. So there is no way the US will take the leadership on AI, right? They already have the leadership on everything. And Europe is a place for regulation. So it doesn't have to be the US. And also because the UK, that is not part of Europe anymore, is organizing a summit in November around um, AI and invited the Americans and other countries, etc., to discuss. So everyone is acting very, very fast to say, okay, we want to be the one arriving with a strong solution that will be the one that will apply to everyone. So um, this is still under discussions. There's been a lot of discussions at the parliament, the commission, the council. Uh, they agreed on most of the technical stuff, you know, but there's still one strong question that is, what is AI? And this is what I found very, very funny because every time I read the reports after the discussions they have, the negotiations, I'm like, oh, so this is very specific measures. But still, what does it apply to? And we still don't know. And yesterday there was a meeting between the French president and the German chancellor. They spoke about AI and they made a declaration together after that saying that um, they agree that we should not go to any useless measures and that we should find some common grounds for generative AI. And I was listening to that and I was thinking, this is still going any, uh, nowhere. We still don't know what is going to be within this regulation or not. To be To be very clear, there is a question about AI in general and generative AI. And the question is that, do we regulate AI in general focusing on the usage? Or do we see, do we say there is a particular concern when it comes to generative AI and we need to regulate strongly that? But if we do that, as it is a new shiny object where all the investors come now, will maybe uh, especially for us Europeans who are not good with innovation now, we'll maybe losing our opportunity to be good somewhere in, in tech. And especially because we have good French and German companies who can do AI. So do we want to regulate them and be sure that the American will be the ones again taking over the market? Or do we want to be soft and then things can work? So we'll have an answer in a couple of weeks maximum. 
Okay. So last question I want to ask, we've been kind of throughout the entire conversation, we've been talking about trade-offs and the name of the podcast being Impossible Trade-Offs. I'm curious, as you've been doing this work around digital policy, what have you found to be some of the most difficult ones that you've had to weigh personally of trying to think about as you're thinking about how to regulate this space? But what's, what's also weighing on you on the other hand? I think the worst when you know how the tech world works, it's to not use that at your advantage. I mean, I've been fighting people doing what we called um, red digital raids, uh, like cyberbullying, etc. When you do a campaign, you have like a, a whole group of digital, of people who can do a digital campaign for you and they can do that. And you know exactly how to do that and, and to make your ideas just be stronger on social media. And you're like, I'm fighting those who are doing that. We're not going to be the trolls. And y- you really have this inner fight with yourself. And so, yes, I think that's been what, what, what was the most difficult for me also to, not um, notify some accounts which were saying things that was that I disagreed with, that were not illegal. I know most people would do that, so I'm trying to shut down some accounts, but I'm fighting that, so I don't have to do that for myself. But sometimes you really, really, really want to do that. And- <laughs> <laughs> I understand. That's well, Leticia, <laughs> well, Leticia, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a fantastic conversation. Um, and I'll put links to a lot of this stuff, um, your work and other things in the show notes. So thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, Katie. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Impossible Trade-Offs. You can find the show notes and everything for this podcast on my Substack at anchorchange.substack.com. I want to thank all of my guests for doing this. And this episode was edited by Claude Jennings Jr. I hope you all have a great day and thank you so much. 